You are listening to NTC Messina's podcast, where our desire as a family of God is to simply know God, love one another, and make disciples. Is worship is a lifestyle. Worship is not just a song set on Sunday morning. A song set meaning four or five, six songs that the worship team decides that that's, those are the songs that they're going to play. That's not worship. <coughs> Instead, we worship together on Sundays and daily through an attitude of surrender in all that we do. And that's what we've been talking about for these, for these six weeks, is we want to have an attitude of worship, a lifestyle of worship. And those songs are a part of worship, and they're an incredible way that, that you can come in and engage in worship and just come and receive and, and have the music just flow over you and the lyrics are provided for you so that you can you know what to sing, and so that's an opportunity for us to worship together, but worship is a lifestyle, it's an attitude, it's, it's a posture. Well, we're in week six on worship, and we saved the most energetic, dynamic, and passionate speaker for today. <laughs> you, you, got, you got the joke. <laughs> I, I am not the most lively of individuals i'm not the <laughs> i know i'm all, I'm all right <laughs> but i'm not the most outwardly passionate person and i'm gonna i'm gonna save that for for about about 15 minutes from now i'm gonna i'm gonna come back to that and why why i'm even bringing that up but we said we saved the me for now uh knowing that that music music is such a, a huge part of our lives you know music evokes emotion when you watch a film or, or television or anything produced, music is used to produce uh, an emotion, is, is to stir something up. We, we, music is used in so many ways in, in our lives. Music stirs up memories. You know, there's songs, when I hear them, I go right back to 1996. When I graduated high school, it's like, those, those are the songs that I was playing. And those are usually, you know, when, the, when you pull people, their favorite songs are the songs that they listened to when they were in high school or in their early 20s. And they just stick with it throughout throughout their lives. You know, music stirs emotion. The other day I was playing, I came across, it's not new, the Preservation Hall Jazz Band, which plays 360 concerts a year in New Orleans. And I was, I was playing the Preservation Hall Jazz Band, and Sydney said, it sounds like Disney World. <laughs> I was like, yeah, it, it stirs up. It, e it evokes a memory or, or an emotion. Music also ignites passion. Is there a song that when you hear it played at a wedding that just makes you want to get up and dance? No, there isn't. <laughs> but, but, maybe, but maybe for you there might be. There is, there is sometimes, and, and Kristen caught me a couple weeks ago where I started air drumming in, in, the, in the back. She's like, I saw you. You were, you were actually moving a little bit. But, but music, it does ignite passion. I know I've been captivated recently by the passion of musicians. I, I, I like to read, and recently I read a, a memoir of a, of, a, of a musician, and just listening to his passion just for music and just, just, just loving playing and, 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 and expressing through, through music, I've, I've been captivated by that. Um, I've also been thinking about how we're affected by the passion of others, that other people's passion tends to be infectious. And other, and other people's, or also others are affected by our own passions or 
our lack thereof. <laughs> Maybe not being passionate is also infectious. Last week, Bruce read from Isaiah 66, and I just want to go back to that for a second. Um, what is the house that you will build for me, the prophet says, Isaiah says, I'm speaking for God, what is the house that you will build for me? And, and Bruce talked about David and Solomon and, and the temple that, that, that was being built. And David, he's the, the second king of Israel. And he is described throughout Scripture as a man after God's own heart. You see, David, we, we see a lot of David's life. And the Scriptures is not shy about talking about David's faults or, or where he screwed up. There's a, there's a lot of that in there, too. But what the Scriptures show time and time again is that David was a passionate man. David was a teachable man. David was receptive. David was was, was res, res, responded when the prophet came in and called him out or when God spoke. He, he course corrected quite, quite well and quite often. And because of that, David is described as a man after God's own heart. He's, he's, he's described as somebody who's responsive to God. And I want to go back to 1 Chronicles chapter 22. I believe Bruce read from a little bit of it on sun, last Sunday. But in 1 Chronicles 22, we see David has a desire for a temple to be built, for God's presence to dwell in, for a place to, to be in the center of Jerusalem, for, for them to build a temple to honor God. I'm going to read through uh, a number of these passages. It says, David said, and he's the king of Israel, the second king in Israel's history. It says, and David said, this will be the location for the temple of the Lord God and the place of the altar for Israel's burnt offerings. So David gave orders to call together the foreigners living in Israel and assign them the task of preparing finished stone for building the temple of God. David provided large amounts of iron for the nails that would be needed for the doors and the gates and for the clamps. And he gave more bronze that could be weighed. He also provided innumerable cedar logs for the men of Tyre and Sidon and brought vast amounts of cedar to David. David said, my son Solomon is still young and inexperienced. Solomon is going to be the next king. He becomes the next king after David. And since the temple to be built for the Lord must be a magnificent structure, famous and glorious throughout the world, <clears throat> I will begin making preparations for it now. So David collected vast amounts of building materials before his death. Then David sent for his son Solomon and instructed him to build a temple for the Lord the God of Israel. I'm going to jump down to verse 11. Now my son, this is David speaking to his son Solomon. He said, now my son, may the Lord be with you and give you success as you follow his directions in building the temple of the Lord your God. And may the Lord give you wisdom and understanding that you may obey the law of the Lord your God as you rule over Israel. For you will be successful if you carefully obey the decrees and regulations that the Lord gave to Israel through Moses, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or lose heart. I have worked hard to provide materials for the building of the temple of the Lord. Nearly 4,000 tons of gold, 40,000 tons of silver. That sounds like a lot. And so much iron and bronze that it cannot be weighed. I've also gathered what you may need though you may need more, you may need to add more. You have a large number of skilled stonesmen and carpenters and craftsmen of every kind. And it goes on from there. See, David, he has a desire to build 
a house for God, a temple, a place for God's presence to dwell. We see this throughout the, the story of, of the nation of Israel, uh, a, a tent, a tabernacle, a temple where God's presence can dwell in the center of camp or in the center of the city for, for his presence so that the Israelites can come and they can, they can stand in the presence of God or, or be there in, in, and around the presence of God. And so David is preparing, and he's, he's gathering workers, he's gathering materials, and he's, he's laying out the plans, and he's, he's setting Solomon. But he gives Solomon this instruction. I want to go back to verse 12. He says to Solomon, May the Lord give you wisdom and understanding, that you may obey the law of the Lord your God as you rule over Israel. For you will be successful if you carefully obey the decrees and regulations that the Lord gave to Israel through Moses. We'll come back to Solomon, but this is, this to me is reminiscent of the challenge that's put before the descendants of Jacob hundreds of years previously. See, the scriptures, the Old Testament centers around a, a people group, centers around a family that becomes a nation. And the descendants of Jacob, of Abraham, his son Isaac, and his son Jacob, the descendants of Jacob, they, they go down after a famine, they go down to Egypt, and they're there, about 75 people at that time go down into Egypt and they're there for a famine and they end up being there for about 400 years and that 75 people becomes a lot more and, and times change and the, those, that people group, that family, those descendants of Jacob, those descendants of Israel, the Israelites, they're named after their father. The Israelites find themselves in captivity and slavery. They find themselves enslaved to Pharaoh in Egypt and God comes and he speaks to Moses, one of the Israelites, and he says, Moses, I want you to go and I want you to bring the Israelites out of Egypt to where you're standing, which is at Mount Sinai, and I want you to come out of Egypt to worship me. The invitation that Moses is going to go to Pharaoh with and go to the Israelites with is that our God desires us for, for, to come and worship him, to be in his presence in this space where Abraham stood in this space where God appears to Moses, to stand in this space and to worship. And so they arrive. So it's a long story, and we're not going to cover it all, but they eventually get there in Exodus chapter 19. God delivers them from the Egyptians, and they come to that, to that place at Mount Sinai. In Exodus chapter 19, exactly two months after the Israelites left Egypt, they arrived in the wilderness of Sinai. After breaking camp at Rephidim, they came to the wilderness of Sinai and set up camp there at the base of Mount Sinai. Then Moses climbed the mountain to appear before God. The Lord called to him from the mountain and said, Give these instructions to the family of Jacob. Announce it to the descendants of Israel. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians. You know how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you will obey me and keep my covenant. You will be my own special treasure from among all the peoples on the earth, for all the earth belongs to me, and you will be my kingdom of priests, my holy nation. This is the message you must give to the people of Israel. We see a, a similar message being given by Moses to the Israelites that David gave to Solomon. He says you need to obey what God says. <laughs> There's been instructions, there's been decrees, there's been commandments, and you need to listen. <laughs> you need to do what God tells you to do. And if you do, things are going to go well. 
And it says here, Moses, God is telling Moses that he, he desires that the nation of Israel, the descendants of Israel, to be a, a, a nation of priests. And a priest just being simply someone who represents God. Someone who, who stands and worships God, but also someone who represents God to other people. And his desire here at the very beginning, as Israel has come out of Egypt and they're standing at this mountain, and they've come there to worship, the desire that God has is for them to represent God to everybody around them. Well, how do you think they did? Spoiler alert. They did terrible. <laughs> Almost immediately, Moses goes back up on the mountain and he's receiving instructions from God and immediately the Israelites try to take things into their own hands and do it their own way, the way that they already knew how to do. Instead of waiting to hear the decrees, to hear the instructions, to hear what God has to say, they decide to do it their way. They decide to do it the old way. And the whole of the Old Testament all the way through is just one example after another of God inviting his people in and giving them instructions and saying, if you do this, things will go well for you. And them saying, you'll do it. And then they quickly don't. I, I, I had this thought last week as I, I was thinking about this. I thought, and this may not be a very good way of describing the Old Testament, but I thought the, New, the Old Testament is an exercise of God saying to Israel, fine, do it your way. <laughs> he allows them to do it their way over and over and over again. It's not the best way. There was, a, there was a way that God wanted them to be. There was a way that God wanted them to relate. There was a way that God wanted them to act, but they didn't. He desired, and it says right here at the very beginning, he desires for them to be a nation of priests, that together they would stand and worship God. Together they would stand in the presence of God, and together they would show everybody else what God is like. But quickly they say, hey, Moses, you just go talk to God, and we'll, you, you do that part, and we'll go over here, and we'll do our own thing, and you just be a mediator, and we don't, we don't want to fully engage in what God has for us. They, they ask for a priest to represent them when God said, I want you all to be priests. They say, no, I don't want to be a priest. And so God says, all right. And he, and he sets aside the Levites to be the priests. I, you ever had the conversation like that with your kids where you say, where you give them an instruction and they decide to do it their own way and you're like, well, we'll see how that goes. You know, whether they're two years old or whether they're 18 years old or whether they're 40 years old, you can watch and you can say, I don't think that's going to go well, but you kind of just got to let it happen. You got to let it play out. Sometimes you can, you can step in, but usually when I step in forcefully, that doesn't really, go, <laughs> doesn't really go very well. And God does step in and he does correct and he does, he does do a lot of things with, with the, the Israel, but for the most part, the whole batch of the, of the Old Testament is them failing over and over again. God wanted a nation of priests. Later, Israel is going to ask for a king. Now, God said, I am your king. This is a kingdom of priests. But he gives in and, and he gives them a king. 
Saul becomes their king, and then David becomes their king, and then we come to this moment between David and Solomon. So let's check back with Solomon. David was setting him up to build a temple, a place to worship God. I want to go back to that First Chronicles 22.12. David, David says, May the Lord give you wisdom and understanding that you may obey the law of the Lord your God as you rule over Israel. For you will be successful if you carefully obey the decrees and regulations that the Lord gave to Israel through Moses. Well, how did he do? <laughs> well, let's, go, let's jump back again to Deuteronomy chapter 17. It's an interesting passage in Deuteronomy chapter 17. This is hundreds of years before in the decrees that, that God is giving to the nation of Israel. And he's, he said that he is their king. He desires for them to be a kingdom of priests. But he knows his people. He knows his creation. And he knows that someday they're probably going to want a king and they're going to set up a king. And so God gives some instructions to them for when that time comes. So Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 14. It says, you're about to enter the land your God is giving you. When you take it over and settle there, you may think, we should select a king to rule over us like the other nations around us. If this happens, be sure to select as king the man the Lord your God chooses. You must appoint a fellow Israelite. He may not be a foreigner. The king must not build up a large stable of horses for himself. Stick with me here. The king must not build up a large stable of horses for himself or send his people to Egypt to buy horses. For the Lord has told you, you must never return to Egypt. The king must not take many wives for himself because they will turn his heart away from the Lord. Yeah, kind of obvious, but. And he must not accumulate large amounts of wealth in silver and gold for himself. These are the instructions that, that God gives. He says, I, I feel a day is going to come where you're going to go into the land. You're going to say, we want to be like everybody else. We want a king. God says, okay, if you do that, here's a couple instructions. One, don't accumulate large amounts of gold and silver. Two, don't go down to Egypt and get horses and chariots. And three, don't have many wives. And you're thinking, okay, that's kind of obvious. I, I, I get it. Well, let's check in with Solomon. How did Solomon do? Spoiler alert, terrible. <laughs> in 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 14, what are the three things? Don't accumulate lots of gold and silver. Go down, don't go down to Egypt and get horses and chariots. And don't marry a bunch of women. All right, so Solomon. Each year, beginning in verse 14, each year Solomon received 25 tons of gold. Other translations say 666 talents. I wonder if the author is trying to say something. This did not include the additional revenue he received from the merchants and traders, all the kings of Arabia and the governors of, of the land. King Solomon made 200 large shields of hammer gold, each weighing more than 15 pounds. He also made 300 smaller shields of hammer gold, each weighing nearly 4 pounds. The king placed these shields in the palace of the forest of Lebanon. Then the king made a huge throne decorated with iron, ivory and overlaid with fine gold. The throne had six steps and a rounded back. There were armrests on both sides of the seat and a figure of a lion stood on each side of the throne. There were also 12 other lions, one standing on each end of the six steps. 
No other throne in all the world could be compared with it. All of King Solomon's drinking cups were solid gold, as were the utensils of the palace of the forest of Lebanon. They were not made of silver, for silver was considered worthless in Solomon's day. So much silver. Don't acquire much gold and silver. Acquired so much, it's worthless. The king had a fleet of trading ships of Tarshish that sailed with Hiram's fleet. Once every three years, the ships returned loaded with gold, silver, iron, apes, and peacocks. I don't know why I didn't notice that earlier. Anyway, uh, so, so King Solomon became richer and wiser than any other king on earth. People from every nation came to consult him and to hear the wisdom God had given him. Year after year, everyone who visited brought him gifts of silver and gold, clothing, weapons, spices, horses, and mules. Solomon built up a huge force of chariots and horses. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horses. He stationed them in the chariot cities and some near him in Jerusalem. The king made silver as plentiful in Jerusalem as stone. Invaluable cedar timber was as common as sycamore fig trees that grow in the foothills of Judah. Solomon's horses were imported from Egypt and from Cilicia. The king's traders acquired them from Cilicia at the standard price. At that time, chariots from Egypt were to be purchased for about 600 pieces of silver and the horses for 150 pieces of silver. They were then exported to the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Aram, which, by the way, just give you a context of what's being described here. The horses and chariots are like the tanks of Solomon's day, and Solomon's become an arms dealer. God had given instructions not to acquire massive amounts of, of chariots and, and horses, and he did, like, excess of that. Okay, stick with me for a second. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women. Besides Pharaoh's daughters, he married women from Moab, Ammon, Eden, Sidon, Sidon, and from among the Hittites. The Lord had clearly instructed the people of Israel, you must not marry them because they will turn your hearts to other gods. Yet Solomon insisted on loving them anyway. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines. All right. It's a lot of information here. <laughs> but context. What, what's the context here? David wants to build a house for God. David wants a temple where God's presence can, can dwell amongst his people. And he lays plans for that. And he tells Solomon, you're going you're gonna to build this for me. And Solomon does. He uses all the materials. He follows the plans. He builds a beautiful house for, for God. He builds a more beautiful house for himself later. But he, he builds this temple. But, but God says to Solomon, make sure that you obey the instructions that Moses gave. And it's, it's almost comical, those three instructions, how far Solomon goes. And like, did he not pay attention? Like, did he not get it? Don't buy horses from Egypt. Buy them from somewhere else. I don't know. 700 wives, 300, we're not going to go there. But it's just, it's an example that Solomon, he built the temple. He built the house of God, or a house for God. But what Solomon didn't do was take care of his own temple, his own person. He, put, he built a big temple and made a big show. But he clearly failed in his own personhood. And he's described as the wisest man in the, in the world. But he wasn't very smart. I mean, really. 700 wives, 300 concubines. 
he just, he may have been wise, but he wasn't smart. And he clearly did not do what David told him to do or what Moses told him to do or what God told him to do. And what happened after Solomon died was the nation fell apart. Half the nation goes into captivity. Half of it remains, or it breaks up for a season. Sorry, my history lesson is wrong. It breaks up, the kingdom breaks up for a series of time, and then over stages, they, they each go into captivity. And, and Solomon is the last king over the entire nation that ever reigns. From then until now, it's been, it's been a dispersed Israel. He failed so bad that, that the kingdom broke up. I think there's a lesson that can, be, that can be learned in this. That Solomon, he built the temple that God had planned, but as I said, he failed to take care of his own temple. You know, Israel missed it over and over again. They were given instructions, and they, and they failed. They, uh, Solomon missed it. God wanted a people to dwell with and to represent him well. It goes all the way back to his instructions to Adam and his instructions to Abraham, his instructions to Moses, and all the way through, God desires for a people that he can commune with, a people that he can relate to, a people that he can, he can come and be among and, and dwell with his people and that his people will, will be able to represent him well to everybody around them. That's been God's desire from Genesis all the way through Revelation. And Israel does a poor job of that, and Solomon does a poor job of that. And then Jesus comes along the scene, and he does not do a poor job of that. Spoiler alert, <laughs> Jesus does it right. <laughs> Jesus gives us an example, is, is an example of how to live, and gives examples on how to live, and gives teachings on how to live. He reframes the law. He explains it. Israel is not our example. They're an example of God's mercy and grace and his patience. But Jesus comes along and he, and he clarifies things and he looks around and he sees what his countrymen are doing. And he sees how the law is being interpreted and how the law is being applied. And he, he brings a massive course correction. I, I've been sitting with a, a friend of mine who is new to the scriptures and he, he's been reading the Bible. And I says, what are you reading? And he says, I'm in Numbers. And if you haven't read Numbers before, it's not the easiest page turner. <laughs> And he, he has no context for what he's reading. And he's like, what, what, what do I do with this? I said, well, let's, let's fast forward a little bit. Let's go to Jesus. And Jesus comes, a man comes to Jesus and he says, what's the greatest commandment? And we're familiar with this, or if you're not, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you. A man comes to Jesus and says, there's all these commandments. There's 500 and some laws in the Old Testament. What's, what's, what's number one? And Jesus, multiple times over, over the course of his ministry, the scriptures tell us he basically, he sums up all of the law with two things. Love God and love each other. Those are the cliff notes. <laughs> but if, so what, what I said to my friend and what I say all the time is if when you're reading the Old Testament, when you're reading the law, when you're reading the history and you get bogged down in numbers and you're trying to figure out what is Solomon doing, Jesus says the whole point of all of it is love God and love each other. And if you're not getting that from what you're reading, reread it. <laughs> this is Jesus' words. Later, 
the disciples on the road to Emmaus are, are speaking with Jesus, and it says that he unpacks all the law and the prophets, and he shows how it's all concerning himself. If we don't see Jesus all the way through, we need to go back and try to look for him again. That the whole reason for, for, for the history of Israel and the whole reason for God wanting a people that will, that, will, that will house his presence and show him to the world is so we can love God, so we can understand who he is, so we can commune with him, so we can worship him. And so we can do that in the way that the world around us can see, wow, these people love people. These people really love their God. They sing kind of loud and, and do funny things, and some of them have even dance. But they're passionate about their God. Jesus reframes the law. He explains it. In John chapter 2, verse 19 Jesus makes a statement. He says, destroy this temple. We've been talking about temples, and there's a big one in Jerusalem at this time. Destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. What? They exclaimed. It has taken 46 years to build the temple, and you can rebuild it in three days? But when Jesus said this temple, he meant his own body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered he had said this, and they believed both the scriptures and what Jesus had said. See, God desires a place for his presence to dwell. And he does give instructions to the people to build a tent and to build a tabernacle and to build a temple. But it wasn't the original instructions. The original instructions were, come on up out of Egypt and come to the mountain and worship me. And you will be a kingdom, a nation of priests. That's the original instructions. Everything that comes after that is a response to their response. And it's a good response. And there's, there, we, there's a lot that we can talk about in that. But God, God is, is working with his people and trying to bring them along until Jesus comes and he says, okay, we're going to go back to the original plan. And I'm going to show you what it means to live. I'm going to show you what it looks like to live out what, what God has said all the way through the, the Old Covenant, all the way through the Old Testament. And then I'm going to make a way for you to do it. And I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to come and dwell in you. Not to dwell in a temple, not to dwell in a tent, not to dwell in a tabernacle, but to dwell in you because what God's been looking for all along is to dwell with his people. As, as it describes in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve walking with God, communing with God, under just hearing his footsteps. That's been the plan. That's been the desire all the way through. And God desires for us to be his temple together and individually to be a place where his presence can dwell. And so we've talked a lot about temples and tabernacles and houses and tents because the Bible does have a lot to say about it. As I said earlier, when God looked at David, he saw a man after God's own heart, a man of worship, a man sensitive to the spirit, a man where his presence could rest, because that's what God has been looking for the whole time. Listen to the, to the words of the prophet Hosea. In Hosea 11, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And I called my son out of Egypt. 
But the more I called to him, the farther he moved from me. The question I want to pose to us today is, what does God see when he looks at you? What does he see when you worship? Does he see someone whose heart is inclined toward him? Does he see somebody that's after his heart? Are you taking care of your temple? Are you preparing your space to be a place that God can dwell? As I read from our value, worship is not a set of songs, it's a posture, and we practice it in song. God is more interested in you than he is in this building. 1 Peter 2, verse 4, says, You are coming to Christ, who is the living cornerstone. We sang this a few moments ago. Who is the living cornerstone of God's temple. He, Jesus, was rejected by people, but he was chosen by God for great honor. And you are living stones that God is building into a spiritual temple. What's more, you are his holy priests. Go back to Exodus. You are his holy priests. Through the mediation of Jesus Christ, you offer spiritual sacrifices that please God. Jumping down to verse 9. For you are a chosen people. You are royal priests, a holy nation. Meaning you're set apart. God's very own possession. And as a result, you can show others the goodness of God. For he called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Are you aware of your presence? <laughs> Are you aware of your, your face? As I, as I said earlier, I'm not the most passionate, charismatic, maybe I am, and I don't know, whatever. I'm not the most passionate, charismatic, outwardly passionate person. My daughter has a boyfriend. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he's a great guy. He's a, he's a good kid. He's a kid. Oh, he's, he's a man. He's a great guy. Honestly, it doesn't matter who the boy is. It's still going to be a little hard for me. <laughs> she's, my, she's my girl. Well, my daughter has a boyfriend, and a little, a little while ago, she told me, he doesn't think you like him. <laughs> it's like, well, I don't. <laughs> But that's not what she was saying. She was saying, when he's around, you don't look very happy. <laughs> you aren't, you're not being you when, when he's around. And I had, to, I, had, I had to reflect, I had to pause, and I had to think, okay, what, what am I showing when this, this young man is in my house? Am I showing Jesus? <laughs> no, not very well. Am I showing that I care? Am I showing that I'm interested? Because I do. I, I really do. He, he, he's, he's an incredible, incredible guy, and I do care, and I, and I want to, 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 ha to have a good relationship with him. Well, what I had to realize is I didn't look like I cared, <laughs> and I was wearing my emotions a little too much on my sleeve, and really I was just, in, in some ways, I was, uh, I'll say this loosely, I was just being me. 
because he is a much more charismatic, more energetic, more passionate guy. Uh, I'm not. <laughs> and so my lack of energy was subdued because of what was going on in my head as well. But what I had to realize is that that had an impact on him and had an impact on my daughter and had an impact on everybody else who was around me. I had to be conscious of what do people see when they see me? <laughs> now this is, uh, this is a, uh, go with me on this thought. When, when I come to church, I just, I have to kind of put my game face on. <laughs> and it isn't being fake because and that there is, there, there is a way that we can be fake and you can just show the world what you want to see and post the pictures and post the comments that you want to see and you can tailor, this is what I want people to think when they see me. That, that, that's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is, I do care. I love God. I am extremely passionate about his church. I want to see people come to life and find healing and hope and restoration. But I have to work on you seeing that in my face. <laughs> and that's okay. I have to smile because for the most part, especially the, the half hour before the service, I'm running around making sure that things are in order, that things work and the curriculum is, is working right and machines are working properly and I can just run by people and be distracted with things that really at the end of the day don't matter as much as people do and I realize that for me and maybe this isn't for you but maybe this is for me I have to be conscious of, of my presence I have to be conscious of my face and the question at the at the top of your, your notes and the thought that I want that I'm trying to bring out of talking about Solomon is when God looks at you what does he see does he see a man or woman after God's own heart? When the world or when your neighbor or when your friend or, or when the, the clerk at the, at the store sees you, what do they see? Do they see a friendly face? Are you being a priest in your life? Are you reflecting God? Are you showing God what the world, are you showing the world what God is like? I think we need to own that a little bit and kind of be aware of how, of how we impact others. Because Israel did not do a good job of that. Jesus did. And what, what, one of the things that I'm so captivated with in the person of Jesus in, in the gospels is how people were drawn to him, how different types and, and sizes of people, that from children all the way up and, and soldiers, and the people just felt comfortable. They felt drawn to his presence. That's what God wants for his body. Jesus is our head and we are his body and we are supposed to be attractive to the world. And we're not gonna fake it. It's not, this isn't about, I love what Christian said a couple weeks ago, we're not gonna fake it till we make it. This isn't that. We're not gonna, we're not gonna tailor the message to have an impact. No, we just, we actually wanna show what we actually care about. And we want people to see that we care about it. We wanna see, we want people to see that we are passionate 
about God. We are passionate about worship. We are passionate about restoration and healing and hope and life and love. We are passionate about that. So we're gonna, we're gonna come to the table this morning. I'm gonna, I'm gonna lead us through a, a, the passage in, in 1 Corinthians where Paul talks about the table and the table being something that we remember what Christ did for us so that we can do it for, for everybody around us so that we can, we can continue to carry it on that as, as Christ sacrificed for us, we get to live a life of sacrifice for the world around us. Because Jesus gave us his, the example. He lived the best life possible. He said, this is how you do it. And we get to follow him in that. Why don't we stand this morning? There's gonna be some folks that can come and be prepared to distribute the, the, the cup and the, and the bread. We're gonna, we're gonna take a few moments as the band sings to, to come forward and there's some tables at the back as well to come and grab a cup and a piece of bread and, and take it back to our seat and we'll, we'll go through this, this, this practice together. We will, we will do it together. But I, I just ask that you reflect in however you need to reflect, however the Holy Spirit wants to speak to you today of, am I showing God what I want to show him? And am I showing everybody else what I want them to see as well? Am I wanting to worship the creator of the universe and experience that passion and be passionate and infectious? Jesus, we thank you, God, that you are our example. God, that you invite us to follow you, that you invite us to live as you lived. God, we thank you for, for your life. God, for your sacrifice. Jesus, for your death. Jesus, for your resurrection so that we can have life, we can have forgiveness, we can have resurrection in our lives. Why don't we come in and grab the elements? Thank you for listening to NTC Messina's podcast. We hope you join us next week and have a blessed day.